Good morning. I'm going to be talking this morning about the Old Testament. The bulletin says all testaments, but I'm talking about the Old Testament. There was a slight miscommunication there. Um, and uh, I've learned that I have to be clear. So uh, there's always a lesson to be learned in everything. In just a week, we'll be celebrating the birth of a child who would be the most important human being in the history of the world. The story of the birth is going to be told over and over. As you know, this story is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. In the Old Testament, there are a number of significant characters whose, whose birth is recorded. These birth stories must be there for a reason, because there are no stories in the Bible that are there just for entertainment. That doesn't mean there are no entertaining stories in the Bible. There are many entertaining stories in the Bible. But entertainment was not the main purpose for which any of the stories were written. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 15:4 that what was written in former days, that is in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. The birth stories in the Old Testament were there for us to learn, are there for us to learn something from them. Today, we will take a quick look at some of these stories to see what we can learn from them. We will start with the birth of the very first man to be born in the world. God had said that a man who was descended from the woman would overcome the evil one who had deceived her. After Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, God had spoken to them and to the serpent who had deceived Eve. And he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the evil one would be fatally wounded by Eve's offspring, but Eve's offspring would suffer a non-fatal wound. Now when Eve's first son Cain was born, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It seems that Eve thought that this first son of hers would be the one who would defeat the evil one. She was wrong. He turned out to be the first murderer. So the life of Cain is not an example of anything good. But Cain's story does show us a significant fact about the human condition. In the very first generation after Adam's and Eve's rebellion against God, a man murdered his brother. That's how ugly and how horrendous this rebellion is. Rebellion against God is sin. And sin is rebellion against God. And this, and this rebellion grew. 
people became more and more rebellious as the generations went along. By Genesis 6, 5, we read, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So Eve was clearly mistaken if she thought that her first son would be the fulfillment of God's promise. She was wrong about who the Redeemer would be. Now God's promise was firm, but a lot of history had to pass before it was fulfilled. And in this history, there are stories that preview the final fulfillment of the promise. Perhaps, and I say perhaps, some of these stories were included in the Bible lesson that the Lord Jesus gave to the two disciples who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on Easter Sunday. We can't be sure of this. We can't know because Luke didn't tell us which texts the Lord Jesus used in his lesson that day. But we can certainly learn something by examining these stories. One of the stories that gives us a partial preview of the life of the Lord Jesus is the story of Joseph. Joseph has been referred to by, um, by interpreters as a type of Christ. The account of Joseph's birth is in Genesis 30, verse 22. But first we have to know something about the background of this account. Joseph's father, Jacob, had two wives. One of them, Leah, had three sons, but the other wife, Rachel, didn't have any. So Rachel, in her frustration, confronted her husband, Jacob, and said, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's response was that he wasn't God who had the power to give or withhold children. Now there was a custom in that culture that if a married woman was barren and couldn't have children, the husband could take another wife. The child that would be born of that union would be considered the child of the first wife. So Rachel gave her servant girl, Bilhah, as another wife to her husband, Jacob. Bilhah's children would then be Rachel's children. And Bilhah did have two sons. Now this provoked a rivalry between Rachel and Leah. Leah also gave Jacob her servant girl Zilpah for a wife. So a few years later, Jacob had four wives and 10 sons and a daughter, but Rachel still didn't have a child. Finally, God answered Rachel's prayer and gave her a son whom she named Joseph. This son of Rachel and Jacob became Jacob's favorite. As Joseph and his brothers were growing up, Jacob treated Joseph in a special way. And the other boys were envious of him. And when Joseph told his family about dream, dreams that he was going to be the ruler over them, the brothers hated him. They hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. Well, one day they had an opportunity to get, to get rid of him, so they sold him to some slave traders who took him to Egypt. In Egypt, he was sold to a high Egyptian official. Joseph was a faithful servant to this official, and he was a hard worker. 
but he was accused of violating his master's wife and ended up in prison. While he was in prison, the man in charge of the prison recognized Joseph's abilities and put him in charge of the other prisoners. One night, two of the other prisoners had disturbing dreams and they told their dreams to Joseph. The Lord gave Joseph the interpretation of their dreams and the interpretations came true. One of them was hanged and the other was restored to his position as the king's cupbearer. Now when the king's cupbearer was released from the prison, he forgot all about Joseph until two years later when the king, that is Pharaoh, had a disturbing dream. He had two disturbing dreams actually. So Pharaoh was looking for someone to interpret his dreams for him. Then the cupbearer finally remembered his fellow inmate, Joseph, and he told Pharaoh about him. Joseph was then called out of prison and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. The dreams meant that in the land of Egypt, there would be seven years of very good crops and then there would be seven years of famine. So Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and also advised him to put a wise man in charge of the agriculture of Egypt. Well, Pharaoh recognized Joseph's wisdom and put him in charge of Egypt's agriculture. So Joseph the slave became the ruler of Egypt directly under Pharaoh. When the years of famine came, the famine affected the land of Canaan where Jacob and his sons lived, as well as Egypt. So Joseph's father Jacob heard that there was food in Egypt, and so he sent his sons to Egypt to buy food. The sons of Jacob came to Egypt and they bought grain from Joseph. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. He tested his brother's integrity and then after some complicated maneuvering, he finally revealed to them that he was their brother Joseph. Joseph then had the whole family, the whole family of Jacob to come to Egypt where they would be taken care of in this time of famine. They were allowed to settle in a very good place in Egypt and that's how Jacob and his whole family came to be in Egypt. The whole clan, numbering 70 people at first, settled in the land, and Jacob's descendants lived in Egypt for 400 years. Now coming back to Joseph, when Jacob died, Joseph's brother thought, brothers thought that Joseph might take revenge on them for selling him as a slave. And so they sent a message to him claiming that their father Jacob had made a special request to Joseph to forgive his brothers. Well, Joseph had no intention of taking any vengeful action. And he actually wept when he heard that his brothers didn't trust him. He assured his brothers that what had happened to him was all part of God's plan. He said to them, this is in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It was in God's plan that Joseph should go to Egypt to be the man who would save his people from starvation. 
The same kind of ironic action took place in the life of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, in his first recorded sermon at Pisidian Antioch, said to his congregation, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. This is Acts 13.27. Let me repeat that in, in a slightly different way. Every Sabbath, the people who lived in Jerusalem went to their synagogues. And in the synagogue, they heard the Old Testament prophets being read to them. But they didn't understand the message of the Old Testament prophets, especially when the prophets spoke of the coming Redeemer. They didn't get it. And so they condemned Jesus, who was spoken about in the Old Testament prophets. Their action of condemning Jesus was meant for evil, because they hated him. But their evil action turned, was turned around by God to be for the benefit of all of mankind, all of us. God had sent his son Jesus to go to the cross and become the atoning sacrifice for us. So he had to be rejected by his people. God had sent Joseph to Egypt to save his people from death. The story of Joseph is clearly a foreshadowing, a preview of the story of Jesus. Another birth story that is significant is the story of Moses. We find this account in Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. The descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, had multiplied from 70 people over the 400 years to about 2 million people. The Egyptians were afraid that the Israelites might turn against them if there was a war, so they enslaved them. That meant that the Israelite, Israelites' lives consisted of hard work and being abused by the Egyptian overseers. But the more they were worked hard and the more they were abused, the more their population grew. Pharaoh then told all the midwives to kill all the Israelite baby boys but they didn't do it. They claimed that the Hebrew women were, wrong, were strong and gave birth before the midwife could even get there. Well, then Pharaoh ordered all the citizens of Egypt to throw all Israelite baby boys into the Nile River. In this circumstance, there was a, an Israelite woman named Jochebed who gave birth to a son. She might managed to hide him for three months and then she made a little floating crib, like a little boat, and put him in this little boat and hid him among the reeds in the river. When Pharaoh's daughter came to the river to bathe, she found the baby floating in this little boat and adopted him as her own, and she named him Moses. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided that he would defend the Hebrew slaves. He knew that he was a Hebrew. And so he, told, he decided to defend them. And one day he killed an Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite, but there was a witness to this deed, and so Moses had to flee. He ended up in a country to the east of Egypt where he was a shepherd for 40 years. Then one day the Lord called to Moses to go back to Egypt 
to bring the Israelites out of their slavery and lead them to their own country. Moses began by arguing with God, which is always a mistake. Moses argued that he was not a good public speaker, but God told him to take his brother Aaron, who would do the speaking. And then Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh and told him that their God wanted him, wanted Pharaoh to let Israelites go. Pharaoh refused. The Egyptians had a good thing going. Their slaves, the Israelites, were doing a lot of the heavy labor in the country, and they were also working on some of the important building projects. So why let them go? Then, to persuade Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, God sent 10 afflictions against Egypt and Pharaoh. We usually call these afflictions the 10 plagues. At first, Pharaoh simply said no again. But after a few more afflictions, he began to soften. The final, the final affliction was the death of the firstborn son in every Egyptian household, including Pharaoh's household. This was the final blow. And finally, Pharaoh said, go, get out of here. Old Testament explorers will find out more details about the 10 plagues when we get to that in Exodus in 2024. Moses was the leader chosen by the Lord who rescued the Hebrew people from their slavery. But his work was only beginning. He had to lead these 2 million people for 40 years before they finally got to their destination. One of his tasks was to give these people instructions from God, including the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> the people complained constantly. If we think about a man who was over 80 years old having to deal with a whining, stubborn group of rebels for 40 years, we have to feel sorry for him. The exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and their slavery is clearly symbolic of our rescue from the slavery of sin. This man, Moses, was the hero who rescued the Israelites out of their centuries-long slavery and brought them to the land that God had promised. This feat of heroism foreshadowed the life of our Lord Jesus. In the book of Judges, we find the story of a man named Samson, the story of his birth is emphasized in the scriptures, and so we will examine his life along with the other characters that we have looked at. In Judges 13, we read of a woman of the tribe of Dan who was barren. And one day, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you're going to have a son. And she was told that this son should be raised as a Nazarite. That means a special vow. And the relevant part of the vow in this story is that Samson was not to cut his hair. Old Testament explorers will learn more about the Nazarite vow when we get to that in 2024. Samson was not a moral man, nor was he a good leader. God had given him physical strength that, and he used his physical strength in an undisciplined way. He was basically a lone wolf, 
and he fought by himself against the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. The Philistines were a nation which was constantly at war with Israel. They were the perpetual enemy of Israel and of the God of Israel. Even though Samson was an immoral man, God used him to rescue the Israelites from their enemies. The text tells us that he performed feats of strength when the spirit of the Lord came upon him. One of his feats of strength was to kill a lion with his bare hands. One day, Samson met a Philistine woman named Delilah, and he began an affair with her. Delilah was approached by the Philistine leaders and told to find out what is the secret of Samson's strength. And after Samson told Delilah a couple of lies, she finally got him to tell her about his uncut hair, which was a part of his Nazarite vow. So she told the Philistine leaders, and when Samson was asleep, the Philistines cut off his hair, and God allowed Samson to become as weak as an ordinary man. And the Philistines tied him up and captured him. Now when Samson had lost his strength and was captured by the Philistines, he was brought into their temple to be displayed as a trophy of war before the people and they all laughed and mocked him. And Samson prayed that the Lord would give him back his strength one last time. And the Lord did. And Samson pulled down the whole building in which he was being mocked and killed more Philistines at his death than he had in his lifetime. Now why would I include Samson in this series of characters whose, whose birth stories are mentioned in the Bible. He was a rebel. He was immoral. He was a man who was not in control of himself. He used his God-given strength for selfish reasons. But God used Samson. God's people were being harassed by the Philistines and God used Samson to fight back against the Philistines. Now, the story of Samson, the example of Samson, cannot be used as an excuse for immorality or immoderate actions of any kind. But the fact is, God had the story of Samson recorded in the Bible for a reason. Samson's purpose was to fight against the Philistines who were the perpetual enemy of God's people and therefore the perpetual enemy of God. So in that way, Samson was a preview of the Lord Jesus who fought against the perpetual enemy of God's people. In 1 Samuel 1, we read the story of a barren woman named Hannah who prayed to God for a son and was granted her desire. God gave her a son whom she named Samuel, which means asked of God. This woman had promised the Lord that if he would give her a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord for life. Her actual words are recorded in 1 Samuel 1.11. In her prayer, she made a vow to the Lord. She said, O Lord of hosts, 
if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The last part of this oath, that the razor should not would not touch his head, means that Samuel, Samson, pardon me, Samuel, was dedicated as a Nazarite for life. You, of course, remember that from the story of Samson. When Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him to the tabernacle and presented him to Eli, the high, the high priest. Samuel grew up and served the Lord faithfully in the tabernacle. And at this point in history, the word of the Lord was rare in the land of Israel. That means it was a time, well, it was a time of anarchy. It was a time of the judges. There was no king in Israel. The book of um, Judges tells us there was no king of, in Israel. That means there was no moral authority. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Furthermore, Eli, the priest, the man who was supposed to be a spiritual leader, didn't give any spiritual leadership. Eli's sons were also functioning as priests and they were immoral men who ignored God's way of performing the priestly function. So when Samuel was quite young, he had a meeting with the Lord. He had an encounter with the Lord. That's a, another one of those very entertaining stories in the Bible. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 3. After Samuel's encounter with the Lord, he became a leader in Israel. And we read in 1 Samuel 3.20 that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And Samuel gave the people of Israel good leadership. He was a man who was truly in touch with God. He was a man of prayer. And when we read the story of Samuel and his mother, I'm sure that he learned how to be a man of prayer from his mother, Hannah. On one occasion when the Israelites were having a worship service, the Philistines attacked them. But because God answered Samuel's prayer, the Philistines were defeated by the Israelites. During Samuel's tenure, God communicated with Samuel, and so the word of God came back to the Israelite nation. We have looked at the birth stories and the lives of several characters who foreshadowed something in the life of our Lord Jesus. Perhaps you are thinking that I left out the best story of all that have more analogies to the death of Jesus or the sacrifice of Jesus than any other of the stories that we have looked at. So let's look at this most poignant of all the stories. You will find it in Genesis 22. But first, let's look at the background of the account in Genesis 22. Abraham and Sarah had grown old, but they had no children. God had promised Abraham that he would be, become a great nation, 
But how, how could he become a great nation when he didn't even have one son to begin with? So Abraham said to the Lord, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And this was another custom of that time, that if a couple were childless, they could adopt a son who would be their heir and also would look after them in their old age. But the Lord said, this man shall not be your heir. One from your very own body shall be your heir. But the years went on, and there was no child in Abraham and Sarah's family. Then Sarah suggested that she would give her Egyptian maid to Abraham as a wife, and the child that would be born would be considered Sarah's child. You, we saw that in the story of Jacob. So Abraham, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, by Sarah's maid. But this was also a mistake. In fact, the results of this mistake are still with us today. It wasn't until Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 that Sarah bore a son. God had let Abraham, Sarah, and Sarah wait until the birth of their son had to be a miracle. Their son, Isaac, would play a role in a story that prefigured the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And this is how it went. One day, God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God could have simply said, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Abraham would have understood what God was telling him to do. But God identifies Abraham's son in four different ways. He starts off by saying, your son. That's the ordinary word for son. Then he uses a word that indicates that this is a special son. He says, your only son. That's a different word. Isaac was not literally Abraham's only son. There was another son, Ishmael, but he had been sent away with his mother. He was not the son of promise. But this word only son also implied a son that was specially loved because of his uniqueness. Isaac was at this point the only son of Abraham because he was the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. We as New Testament readers have already put together in our minds the connection between this story and John 3.16. The word only son in Genesis 22 verse 2 reminds us of the word only begotten in John 3.16. And then God uses a third term. He identifies Abraham's son by his name, Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. Both Abraham and Sarah had laughed when God announced that they would have a son in their old age. With the name Isaac, Abraham is reminded of the miraculous birth of his son. 
Abraham and Sarah had waited for 25 years after God had promised them a son. His birth was truly miraculous. Then God uses a fourth term in identifying Isaac. He adds, one whom you love. God was asking Abraham to give his son whom he loved as a burnt offering. So what does Abraham do? He has just been commanded by God, offer up your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now we as readers of the story know that God was testing Abraham. The text tells us right at the beginning of the story in Genesis 22:1 that God was testing Abraham. So we as readers can be hopeful about the outcome. Abraham doesn't know this is a test, but he doesn't hesitate to obey God and obey God's command. He sets out without delay early the next morning to do what God had told him to do. When Abraham with his son arrive at the place where God showed him, which God had showed him, he tells the two servants who are with them to wait while he and Isaac go further. His actual words are, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Notice that Abraham refers to Isaac as the boy. He doesn't use the word son. He has already in his mind sacrificed his son. But we also have to notice that he includes Isaac in the journey back. He says, I and the boy will come back again to you. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. So as Abraham and Isaac continue on their way, Abraham was carrying the knife and the fire, but he put the wood on Isaac. Does that remind us of Jesus carrying his cross. We need to read the little segment, the, the, the next little segment of the story very slowly. Let's follow Abraham and Isaac in our imaginations. Think of the two, father and son, who love each other, walking along together and having this conversation. Abraham knows what he is supposed to do, and Isaac doesn't know what Abraham has in mind. This little segment, Genesis 22, verses 6b to 8, begins and ends with a statement, so they went both of them together. And I'm going to read the, the actual text in Genesis 22, 6b to 8. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb 
for the burnt offering my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now the text doesn't tell us how Abraham managed to tie up his son and put him on the altar. And the silence of the narrative at this point suggests that Isaac willingly allowed his father to tie him up. And when Abraham was about to cut his son's throat, the angel of the Lord called out to him and prevented him from making that fatal cut. Abraham's faith in God was vindicated. God had figuratively raised Isaac from the dead. Then when Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket, he sacrificed the ram instead of his son. The ram became a substitute for Isaac. This story is clearly a prefiguring, a preview of the death of the Lord Jesus. The difference is, of course, that in the preview, which featured Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was spared. In the historical event of the death of the Lord Jesus, Jesus was not spared. Jesus went all the way and gave his life so that we can receive eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The stories we have examined have a common theme. A woman gave birth to a son who had a special mission in God's plan. Some of the births, births were clearly miraculous and the son's mission was history changing. So it is with the birth story that we are going to celebrate in a week. It is a story of the most miraculous birth of all. The Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus, the one who was promised in Genesis 3. God's promise was that the offspring of the woman would defeat the evil one who had deceived the first woman, Eve. In the fulfillment of this promise, the one who defeated the evil one was a man born of a virgin. He had no human father, so he was literally and uniquely the offspring of a woman. And the birth story of Jesus was just the beginning of his life story, just as all the Old Testament birth stories were. Christmas is about the birth of a baby boy who was born to die. His birth was the beginning of his journey to the cross and to the empty tomb. The Christmas story is the beginning of the Easter story. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are we thankful? Are we thankful? Father, we are thankful that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for us so that we can live. 
We thank you and we pray that you would continue to bless us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>